This morning, we're going to be taking a look for the rest of us at uh, back in the Gospel of John. We've been working our way through this ancient account of the person uh, of Jesus Christ. As one of his followers reflected and, and thought about who Jesus was, but also the reception he received. A reception that, as we read today's passage, is at times violent and hostile. At times is anything but the longing expectation that we've sung about this morning. So join with me here. I'm going to start uh, reading and follow along with you, excuse me, in John chapter 8 as I read uh, from verse 48. The Jews answered Jesus, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and that you have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he sh will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? The prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. And if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, I pray that as we come to this text, it happens uh, so quick and, and choppy. Lord, there's so many things of what it would feel like to be in this place and time that, that only our imagination can see. And yet, Lord, you have preserved these words for us that we might see ourselves there, that we might see you, what you've done and what you're doing and what you will do. And so, Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit, you would set apart this time in our hearts and our minds to hear and to see and to know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, oftentimes as we uh, gather for the sermon, we ask these really hard and, and heartfelt questions that really get to the, the bottom of life. And so I want us to open this morning by asking uh, a very serious question of, of, was Thanos in the Avengers movies, was he... A, a villain or a savior? A villain or a savior? I, I'm making jests, guys. The, he's, it's a superhero movie. It's not really a serious question. 
It's also not serious because the, the, the solution is obvious. If you've not even seen these movies, you've probably seen this gargantuan, purple, monster-looking guy on movie posters with these weird, like, chin wrinkles that make it look like he's got a goatee, but he, he doesn't. Right, he's this uh, this guy who who's wearing armor, and 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 in the the most recent ones, he's wearing this big gauntlet, this big metal glove. He looks intimidating. He looks scary. He looks exactly like a cartoon villain should be. It's obvious that he's a villain. His his plan and his agenda throughout all of these films is is to is to kill. 50% of the living beings that, that occupy the universe and all the various planets. He is the villain of villains. And yet, if you've seen these movies, you know that it's, it's, it's almost as if the story is progressing and, and, and Thanos is wearing this big placard sign, right? He says, uh, uh, I am the savior of the universe, right? Like, change my mind. Prove me wrong that I am not doing what is best. Because a fascinating part of this character in these stories is that he is completely convinced that all that he is doing, all the havoc, all the death, all the war that he is bringing into the universe is for the salvation of it. He had watched his home planet be destroyed by this overcrowding and a lack of resources, by mismanagement uh, of, of the people of Titan that led to widespread sickness and death. And he is convinced that his mission, his job for the good of all living creatures is that he must take the life of half of them so that the rest could live. He's so convinced of his own saviorhood that he, it's almost like he's confused and, and, and shocked Right when the superheroes from Earth and from around the universe band together to fight against him, and he's confused. Why are you fighting against me? Don't you see that what I'm doing is good? Thanos, in a weird, twisted sort of way, kind of made a point. He made a point, enough of a point, that you as a watcher, as you're watching these movies, you have to deal with the question of, is he right? Or maybe more accurately, like, why is he wrong? Like, I know he's wrong. Like, it's obvious that he's a villain. It's obvious that what he's doing is wrong. But, but can I answer why? Can these superheroes answer why? As we come to the story about Jesus, we have a, a similarly absurd question, right? Is Jesus a villain or a, a savior? And if you're sitting here this morning, the, the answer to that question is like, Duh, right? Of course he's a savior, right? Even if you've not been in church, you know of, of, of his compassion for the poor, for the way he looks after the outcasts, the way that, that he extends mercy and kindness, he, these miraculous healings, this good news to those who are that, the, the opposition he gives to the power structures that oppose and oppress. Obviously, Jesus is not a villain. Obviously, Jesus is a savior. And yet the people who heard him first, 
this crowd of people who gathered around him on this day as he discloses himself now more than he ever has in the Gospel of John, as he reveals what he is and why he's here and what he's doing, the crowd around him reacts to him in the same way the Avengers responded to Thanos. In the same way that, that, that the people, the superheroes, rejected his claims and, and, and taught and looked at him as a villain and it realized that to move forward they must remove him, the same way the crowd looks at Jesus and says, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? A racial slur to undercut his credibility. Are we not right in saying that you have a demon? That you are not just a, a deluded, confused man, but that you are actively working on behalf of the demonic realms to undercut all that God is doing in the world. The people who listened to Jesus, the people who saw him here first, when they heard of his plans and as they watched what he was doing, the conclusion that they came to was that he was a villain who must be opposed at all costs. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to enter into their frame of reference, right? To enter into the, the question of how it is that these people, this crowd who gathers around Jesus and find themselves in a position where they look at Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, and they conclude that somehow he is an evil demonic force. How somehow this man was who they must oppress, even who they must kill as they gathered stones at the end to hurl in his direction. And so I want us to look at this in, in two parts here. The first uh, is, to, is to question, uh, is to notice that they rejected Jesus' claim of what the problem is. What the problem with earth is, what their problem is, they, these people outright and completely reject what Jesus has to say. But not just do they reject the problem, they also reject the solution. The conclusion that Jesus comes to, so that when they look at Jesus, they cannot see a savior. They see a villain who comes to proclaim a kingdom that they don't want, to bring a healing that they don't need, and to bring a, a, a reigning, a power that is not their own. So they reject first what the problem that Jesus presents, and they second reject the solution he offers uh, the first is, is the rejection of the problem. Why did they think that Jesus was demonic? Well, if we look at this story, and I'm going to actually go back to, to the last passage we preached at, because it's all one assembly here together. Jesus, uh, as he came and brings a message to these people, he brings this villainous-sounding phrase, right? That the truth will set you free. Equally, uh, just awfully sounding, right? Is he tells them uh, in in verse uh, in verse fifty two, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. These aren't villainous sounding. Why are they responding with such opposition? Why do they respond to him with such hatred? Well, to the first, we we see when Jesus says the truth will set you free, they take offense. What do you mean set us free? We're we're, we've never been enslaved to anyone. 
What do you mean that we need to be given truth? We are the sons of Abraham. We have all that we need. There is nothing that we are lacking. There's nothing that needs to be solved. When Jesus says that the the truth will allow it such that you will never see death, they take offense. They remark, they, they, they think of their, father, their fathers, their forefathers, Abraham. They think of the prophets. They think, well, those people died. How can death be such something so bad? If our greatest heroes have died, then maybe death is just the way it's supposed to be. Maybe death is normal. Maybe death is the pattern that we see that... The offense of Jesus is that Jesus comes to them and says, you are enslaved to your sin, and you are bound for death, and they want nothing of it. We don't have a problem. We are doing okay. It's irrational, right? It's irrational in the same way that uh, this last week I walked into Home Depot, right, and I was trying to to solve this uh, ceiling fan light that had, had gone out. And in the process of trying to figure out what the problem was, I had, of course, broken like one or two other things in the fan. So now I had to repair all three of them. Um, and so I go into Home Depot looking for this one particular little part. You know, it's about this big, right? And I walk into the, the aisle with all of the, the electrical components, and, and there's, you know, three or four aisles there in Home Depot. And And lo and behold, to my horror, there was this associate who was like, can I help you find something? And as illogical as this is, in my brain, this guttural response that happens without me even thinking about it is, no, I'm fine. I'm okay. I can find this on my own. Right? Of course, I have no earthly idea where to find this little piece that's this big, right? I know generally in the aisles. And so uh, my plan, as opposed to hearing someone offer me help, right? Instead of someone saying, hey, look, you have a problem. You don't know these shelves like I do. I respond, I am doing just fine on my own, thank you. I will spend the next 45 minutes scanning up and down each aisle, re-walking the same aisles back and forth, trying to find the little part that's this big that's way down here, subset below, right? But I do that because I need to be right. I need to tell myself the same thing that I told her, that that I am okay, that I'm in control. The things are going the way that they're supposed to be. These people reject Jesus because Jesus, when he offers his help, it implies, it alludes, it, it demands that they recognize that they are not okay. That the world that they live in is not okay. The things that they do, the things that they say, the death and the destruction and the bondage of the Roman Empire which uh, oppress them are not okay. They want to think it's, it's not perfect, but we're okay. They couldn't accept Jesus as a savior because they didn't have a problem that he needed to fix. Jesus, as he's trying to to highlight this dynamic in them, says this most uh, fascinating phrase here in verse 56. 
as he's trying to point out just how illogical and how frustratingly silly their, their argument is, he, he says to them, truly, true. I'm, I'm sorry, in 56, Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, of course, Abraham lived several hundred years before Jesus came, and, and so there's this confusion. Right? There's this confusion of, of what does Jesus mean about Abraham, and yet it's really not as hard to see as it is. Abraham, of course, is this man that God has come and made promises to. And God has said that, that I will, through you, make this nation, this nation to be a blessing of the earth. I will give you a son. And he said this to this man who lives in great need, not financial need. But in the need that his a, he was old and he had no heir. He said it to a man who, who had no homeland to live in, no place to call his own because he was a wanderer. And God says, I will give you a son and I will give you a land. The Jews uh, often wondered if, if God gave Abraham a, a special vision of what this messianic age would be. But whether you, you think that Abraham received something special or whether Abraham just inhabited the longings of his own heart, he knew that he was not okay, but the promises of God were that he would be fulfilled. Not just that he would have a son, but that son would give birth to a nation, a nation that would be a blessing to the farthest corners of this earth. Not just would he have a home, but he would have a country. A land, a people, a place to be its own. Jesus, as he comes in, he is shown to be the, the promised son of Abraham in the fullest sense. That Jesus, as he comes in, says, Abraham longed to see my day because this is a fulfillment of everything that was promised. All that Abraham said, this is not okay. God in Jesus is making okay. Abraham longed for the coming of Jesus because he longed for what was wrong to be made right. The longing of Abraham. The longing of Abraham is what these people miss. These people who, while they were the physical sons of Abraham, they did not inherit his spiritual longing, a longing for that which is broken to be made right. Instead, they looked at the things that were broken, the death. The, the, the sin, the uncleanness, the things in them that weren't right. And they said, well, we're close enough. We're okay. I bring this up because uh, I, I'm convinced that one of the greatest threats to your spiritual life is the same threat that hearkens after me. It's a threat to, to pretend that everything in my life is okay. We celebrate this season of, of Advent and and there's this funny, uh, this funny um, notion where where we come to Christmas time and we want everything to be magical and beautiful, right? It's it's when we go to family dinners and pretend like there's not discord and and anger and bitterness. It's when we dress up in in nice fancy clothes and we go to Christmas parties pretending like we have this social life all the time instead of being the lonely people that we are. It's a season of the year when, when perhaps we, we arrive at church unexpected 
when we go through rituals and routines, when we sing about how bright and beautiful the world is, and yet it's all a show. It's all fake. It's all a mirage. When instead, this is precisely the season of time when we come and we can come to Jesus because what we're celebrating is that Jesus comes to fix that which is broken in us, fix what is broken in our world that we can freely admit now more than any other time of the year that I am not okay. The depression, the anxiety, the misplaced desires, the the, the charges that I put on my credit card, even though I'll carry a balance because I have to be seen as okay, we can come and we can say that is not what gives freedom. We can come and look at ourselves and see where bondage has still held on to us and see the lifelessness that's there. These people rejected Jesus. He couldn't possibly be a savior. He must be a villain because he comes and he dares to insinuate to them that you are not okay. And he invites us to do the same. Secondly, they rejected Jesus's problem. They insisted that they were doing all right, but they also rejected his solution. They rejected his conclusion, and the two are related, right? It's because they can't agree with him on the problem, the problem in them, the problem in the world, that they cannot understand Jesus' solution, right? Jesus, in, in all of these same places, right, when Jesus comes and says, the truth will set you free, how does it come? He says, uh, because if you abide in my word. In verse 51, he says, you will never taste death if anyone keeps my word. Jesus, uh, perhaps most scandalously in verse 58, says to them uh, an identity of himself, that he is the solution to their problem when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, some of you uh, grammar Nazis in our midst are, are, are a little bit dis, uh, concerned about Jesus' tense confusion here, right? Before Abraham was, I was. That's what he should say, right? He, he went from before Abraham was, past tense, to uh, I am in the present tense. It's a confusing statement. It's a statement that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, at least not to our own ears, but to the Jewish people, then when they hear Jesus come and he says to them, before Abraham was born, I am, they hear those words, I am, and they hear the refrain from a burning bush that spoke to Moses in Exodus 3. As Jesus, as God speaks to Moses, Moses who's afraid, and he says, God, what is your name? What is the name that I ought to tell your people so they will recognize you? And God says to them, I am who I am. When Moses asked, what will the crowds be able to identify you by? How will the crowds know that, that this freedom from slavery is true? That there is real hope in the world? That God has really heard their cries? God says to Moses, says, tell them that the I am has sent you. 
the I am has sent you. You see, Jesus wasn't just saying, I existed before Abraham did. If he did, he could have just said, before Abraham was, I was. No, what, God is, what Jesus is saying in this moment is that before Abraham, you think Abraham brought you healing. You thought Abraham brought you promises. But what, uh, what I'm promising you is not that I'm a new Abraham. I'm not promising you that I'm a new Moses. What I'm saying is, is that I am the voice that proclaimed from the burning bush. I am God. I'm the name that you are afraid to name because it is so holy and it is so righteous. I am the one who you have known to be God, that I am God. People. Miss, didn't miss the message. That might sound like a confusing argument to you, but these people were not confused. And we know that we weren't confused because we can see their immediate reaction, right? When Jesus says to them, before Abraham was, I am. When Jesus identifies himself as being the God of heaven and earth, they immediately pick up stones to throw at him. They immediately hear a blasphemous saying, and they respond in anger, and they respond with violence. And yet the funny part is, is that throughout salvation history, when the people of God have been at their greatest need, when they've known of their need of sla in slavery, when they've known their, their, their lostness in the desert, when they've known their, their bondage by foreign powers, they have been able to hear and identify when God has spoke to them. Abraham welcomed these strange visitors that came and brought message from God. Moses believed the voice that came out of a burning bush because they could see in them that this was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The trademark of God, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is that he is a God who doesn't just sit on high, but a God who comes down to find his people. He does not sit at the top of a mountain waiting for the people to work their way up to him, but he is a God who comes to be in the midst of their people. And so it wasn't confusing to Abraham when angelic visitors visited him in his tent. It wasn't strange to Moses that this burning bush might really inhabit the God of the universe. It wasn't strange to the people of Israel that the God who is with us, Emmanuel, reigned and ro rode around in the Ark of Covenant as they walked around. Through all these obscure things, they said, this makes sense. So great is our need that we need a God to dwell among us. And Jesus, when he comes to these people, when he comes to them and as in this contentious and argumentative exchange, he reveals to them and he says, I am the God of the universe here in human flesh. What they should have thought in their brains is that makes sense. Because our bondage is so great. Our weakness is so prevalent, our, our confusion and sin and anger. These are things we can't resolve on our own. That the burning bush isn't enough of God to save us. That the Ark of the Covenant isn't enough of God to lead us in a new path. The tabernacle's enough. The land, the nation, these are not enough. We need God with us. 
if they had ears to hear, what they could have heard in this moment was the most beautiful news that they could ever imagine. That Jesus was the God who took their woes and their sorrows and he led them to new life. But these are people who refuse to see their need. Unlike Abraham and unlike Moses, unlike all their fathers who came before them, they could not look at themselves and see the darkness that exuded from them. They couldn't look at their world and acknowledge its brokenness. And so the only conclusion that they could have left is that Jesus must be the villain coming to take over their world and their lives, coming to mess with their identities and coming to disrupt all that they had built. And so they missed him. They missed him. God Emmanuel, the God who comes down to be with his people, the God who comes to, to care for their wounds, the God who comes to, to, to lovingly embrace them, to give them forgiveness of their sins. It is that God that they look in the eye as they pick up a stone to kill him because they can't handle what they would see if they looked at themselves. And so the question that this text asks of us this morning is, what about us? How are we, as we enter into this Advent Christmas season, are we prepared to look at Jesus as a villain? Of course, you would never do that out loud, right? But you do it when you dismiss that you have real sins that need to be confessed. You do it when you, when you pretend like Christmas is ritual and tradition. When you do it when you pretend like you are better than you are because when you do that, you dismiss that you are sick and in need of Jesus. When you come and you pretend that you have no need, then you dismiss a la carte that Jesus could be the savior of the world. And if Jesus isn't the savior of the world, he's a bumbling madman. A villainous power ready to disrupt and destroy. But if you are a people who has a need, if I am a person who is in need, then Jesus can become the hope of the world. In Jesus, we can uncover that longing that has defined his people. We can find the longing of Abraham, and we, instead of stoning Jesus, can rejoice to see his day coming. Let us enter into this season and see the coming, not of a villain, but of a savior. Pray with me. Father, we gather, and Lord, we confess that so often we, we respond to you and we respond to your words and your messages without thinking and without thought. God, we go through life just seeking that which is comfortable, that which makes us feel better and look better and do better, and yet, God, somehow in the midst, we miss the greatest story that's ever been told. Somehow in the midst uh, of our longing, we've chosen to shut up our longings rather than to open them up to you, that we might be forgiven that we might be healed, and that we might be led to new life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's stand and sing, O come all you faithful.